So, Hebrews chapter 11. Remember the context of Hebrews chapter 11 is that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get a hold of people's hearts so that they can, they can be firm in their faith because they're thinking about going back into Judaism, about denying the faith, leaving the faith to, so that they can be protected from the onslaught of the, the persecution that's coming. The problem with that is that is that he's warning them, if you do that, you're going to end up back in Jerusalem and the Lord has prophesied that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and you're going to end up back in Jerusalem and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So, we are up to the part of Jacob, but I want what I want you to think about is the way that the Scriptures in Hebrews chapter 11 talked about these men of faith. So, for example, he had talked about Abel offering a righteous offering. He had talked about uh, Noah and the ark that he built for the saving of the world. He talked about Abraham and several steps of faith in Abraham's life. One of them being that he left the land in obedience. Another one of them believing that even though he was dead in his ability and Sarah dead in her ability to have children, had a child. And then another one of Abraham was that when he offered up his son... But now when we get down to Jacob, to Isaac, there's just one sentence which we covered last week. And then to Jacob, it says in verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 11, By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Think about that. It gives one sentence of his faith that happened right near the end of his life. And that sentence of faith that it says, By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. It doesn't say that he blessed Joseph. It says that he blessed each of the sons of Joseph, which were Ephraim and Manasseh at that time. And he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. There's an interesting thing here. It says leaning on the top of his staff. We're going to read in the book of Genesis is that he worshipped He worshipped at the head of his bed. Here it says leaning on the top of his staff. And the problem here is that that word staff and bed is very hard to distinguish between in that old Hebrew in the book of Genesis. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which this author, was, the author of the book of Hebrews, was obviously working off of, says that he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. So that we know that the author of the book of Hebrews was using the this, this Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was around in the first century. That's what he was using. Or else he would have had to become his own translator to take the Mesoretic text, which is the text from which our Old Testament is translated, translated into Greek, and then write it down for these people, because he's writing in Greek. So you can actually see the progression of how these translations occurred like this, which actually builds for the authenticity of this. Okay, so let's turn to, to now, to, now uh, um, to the book of Hebrews, and uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to end up to start reading in, in uh, I'm sorry, turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter four, chapter 47. But before I do that, I want to cover again about Rebecca. Remember, Rebecca deceived her husband and brought Joseph, brought Jacob into this deception. Rebecca deceived her husband Isaac, brought her son into this deception. What was the result of this upon Rebecca for deceiving her, her husband? 
Well, remember we read the verse last time. She said, I don't want to be bereaved of both of my children. Esau is planning to kill you, Jacob. You better flee and I'll call for you in a few days. Why should I be bereaved of both of my children in one day? Possibly meaning that if Esau tried to kill you, you would kill him in return and both of you would die. Or that she had already lost a relationship with Esau, having brought on this deception, and she didn't want to have her son Jacob die as well. But she was actually bereaved of both of her children on that very day. It's because she had no more relationship with Esau after that. And and Jacob ends up going to Paran, and she never sees him again. She said, I'll call for you in a few days. She never saw him again. She died while he was away. She was bereaved of both of her children on that day for bringing in deception to her husband. She could have done it another way. She could have prayed. So he, she was bereaved of both of her children on that day. And, and, it, uh, uh, and Esau actually sees that they don't like his two wives who are Canaanites. And so what does he do? He goes out when he sees this and understands it. He goes and he marries one of the daughters of Ishmael. Which brought in more problems. He may have done that just to spite his mother. We don't know for sure. He may have done it out of ignorance. He may have done it to spite his mother. I have known women to marry young men just to spite their mother. Knowing that their mother wouldn't like it. And just to spite their mother, they would do it. Her burial was never mentioned. It was only mentioned much later. And it's sort of in your face. It mentions the burial of Deborah, her maid... And even when she died, where she was buried, never mentions Rebecca's burial until much later we learn at the end of the book of Genesis that she was buried in Hebron in the same place as Abraham and Sarah. She was going to be buried at that same place. And her burial is only mentioned years afterward. Well, what happened to Jacob because of his deception? Because sometimes there's this feeling like, oh, people get away with things in life. People get away with it. Well, let's think about it. Jacob himself was deceived over and over again for a period of 20 years by his father-in-law, Laban. He worked seven years only to marry a woman who was deceptively put into his tent. It was the wrong woman when he woke up in the morning. Imagine that. I mean, he must have been pretty drunk or something. And then he has to work another seven years for the right woman. He never negotiated the terms. Laban set the terms. He said, oh, okay. And then another six years for the flocks. And, and uh, by his own description, he says that he worked by the heat of the day, by the cold of the night, and sleepless, sleeplessness due to the cold and care of the animals. Because if any of the flocks were lost, Laban made him pay it out of his own allotment. Not out of Laban's allotment. So he had to guard the animals as well. And so that's all summarized in Genesis 31, verses 38 through 41. And then in Genesis 31, it says Rachel uh, and, and, and Leah's father had changed... Rachel, Leah's father... I'm sorry, Leah's father, Rachel, changed the terms on him ten times. So over this 20-year period, he kept on changing the terms on Jacob. Jacob deceived his father. He was deceived ten times. Ten times. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. 
You sow a little bit, you get many times over. Ten times his terms were changed by Laban. That's in Genesis 31.7. He says of his own life, in Genesis 47, verses 7 through 10, he says, Few and unpleasant have been my years. Jacob would get in real conflicts with his wife Rachel, whom he loved, but real conflicts where his anger would burn against her. That's in Genesis 30, verse 2. There was constant bickering in Jacob's home. He had these two wives. They would bargain with each other as to who was going to have him for the evening. And they would, they would decide amongst the two of them which one of their maids was going to sleep with him for the evening. Jacob was totally objectified in this relationship. Not a pleasant home at all. That's in Genesis 30, verse 16. Rachel, his beloved wife, was an idol worshiper. And Jacob had to tell her to put away her idols. This is Genesis 35, verse 2. Rachel was caught lying to her father. She stole her father Laban's idols. And then when he's looking for them, he lies to her. Jacob did not know that she stole them. And he makes a proclamation. He says, whoever has them, let that person die may well have brought on her early death in childbirth, bearing her second child, her early death. Our words, remember, our words have power. Rachel dies in childbirth. Uh, this, is, this is the beloved wife of, of, uh, of Jacob. His beloved wife dies young in childbirth. As a result of being an, an idol worshiper, she was never buried with the patriarchs. Abraham and Sarah are buried there. Rebecca was buried there. Jacob and uh, Jacob was buried there, but his wife was not. Isaac was buried there. His wife never got there. And in fact, she died not far from that site. But yet he did not bury her at that site. It could well have been because she was an idol worshiper. That's in Genesis 35, verses 16 through 20. Jacob had deceived his brother or had bargained with his brother saying, give me the birthright. Remember what a birthright means. The, per, the child with the birthright, the oldest child, generally gets two-thirds of the inheritance. All the other children share one-third. That's what, that's what birthright means. You get double the inheritance all for the one child. Every, all the other kids share one-third. So it was supposed to be Esau two-thirds, Jacob one-third. Jacob put that bargain upon him so that Jacob would get the birthright two-thirds. Well, he end up, ended up probably giving back more than that one-third that he had taken... And uh, because he feared Esau was going to kill him. That's in Genesis 32, verse 14 through 15. Jacob was told and he believed that his favorite son at the age of 17 was torn up by animals. And it was due to a lie of nine of his sons. Nine of his sons lied to him and said, we found this, your son is dead. From the age of 17 till around the age of 40, he never saw his child. He thought his child was dead. Talk about a hard life. Talk about a very hard life that was brought upon him. Reuben, his oldest child, uh, uh, sleeps with Jacob's concubine, one of Jacob's wives, the mother of Naphtali and Dan. Jake, uh, Reuben, the oldest child, sleeps with the mother of two of his brothers. It's a difficult home, a problem home. He experiences the pain of his daughter Dinah getting raped. Jacob's two sons go in and kill an entire village of men, all the men in that village, when they were under bond of an agreement. They went and killed the entire village. And then his other sons went and pillaged the village in the morning. 
Talk about a difficult home. What is the fruit of walking in deception? A lifetime of problems this man had. He was caught in a famine. His son Simeon was imprisoned in Egypt. His youngest son Benjamin was taken from him in Egypt. Jacob's sons were constantly fighting. And I have verses for all of these. It's a difficult life. We get away with nothing. Now let's read in Genesis 47 because now in the end of Jacob's life, God gets a hold of his heart. He had a very painful life. So to think that we can walk in deception and God will forgive me and I'll be just fine. God will forgive you. There is no doubt. If you've received Jesus, God's forgiveness is there in Jesus Christ. But there will be pain in the life if there is deception. If we walk deceptively, there will be pain. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap, the Scripture said. By your words you shall be justified, by your words you shall be condemned. Every careless word that a man speaks, he shall render account for in the day of judgment, Jesus said. There is penalty for this. So to think that, okay, well, you know, when it's all over, I'll I'll just get back to it. Jacob had a very difficult life as a result. And his family paid for it as well. The sins of the fathers were passed on to the children just because it brought deception into the home. He deceived his father. Nine of his children deceive him. Or or ten of his children deceive him concerning his, his one son that, that, that uh, was taken into Egypt. They thought he was dead. So in Genesis 47, you see that all of a sudden, God's got a hold of Jacob's heart. In the end of his life, God has a hold of his heart. Now let's read Genesis 47, verse 27. Well, let, let, Let's pick it up in... Uh, let's first read verse 7. Genesis 47, verse 7. So the context here is that Joseph ends up doing really well in Egypt... He was brought in as a slave at the age of 17. He spent time working as a slave. Then he was thrown in prison for something he never even did. When he was a poor man, he was very well devoted to God. He got overnight exalted, thrust up to be leader in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. When his his brothers are starving, he brings them to Egypt. And it says, then Joseph brought his father, Jacob, in verse 7 of Genesis 47, and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained to the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Jacob was a dignified man at this point. The age of 130, the Lord had gotten hold of his life. All of this pain, he comes into him and he, he blessed Pharaoh. He didn't come in with the intent of blessing Pharaoh, but this man blessed Pharaoh because he knew he needed a blessing. He wasn't ashamed coming before Pharaoh. Even though Pharaoh and the land of Egypt was going to control the food for his family now, he didn't come in bowing. He didn't come in saying, Oh, I am thy servant. He came in knowing he was a child of God. And he blessed him. And Pharaoh said, how how old are you? He says, I'm 130 years old. Difficult to bring my years. And then it says, and he blessed Pharaoh again in verse 10. And he went out of his presence. He was brought in. It says, Jacob brought him in. He blessed Pharaoh. He turns and he walks out. As far as we can tell, he walks out alone. The viceroy stays. 
Now it's, it, it's 17 years later. And, and we see in verse 27 of Genesis 47. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. So the family of Jacob moves to Israel. There were about uh, uh, just a, uh, around 100 people of his family and his, his, his uh, entourage. Remember, he had 12 sons and a daughter, and they had their children. There were about 100 that moved into Egypt. They became very fruitful in the land of Goshen. Now you look at this, and the Scripture looks at this with a little bit of a turned head. They became very fruitful and numerous. And if you, if you kind of like Israel, you say, wow, Good for them. Good for them. God bless them. But this was the beginnings of what would be their persecution in Egypt because they became so successful over the years. When a new Pharaoh had arisen that had never heard of Joseph, the persecution started because all these Jews were so greatly blessed. The land of Israel was so greatly blessed. And remember, Joseph, in his leadership, had brought into servitude... All of Egypt became servants to Pharaoh and slaves to Pharaoh in order to get food. So it was so set up by Joseph to make all Egypt subservient while protecting his own family. And that led to such a mismatch in the economy that soon they turned on the, land, on the Israelites. Verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147. So remember, he appeared to Pharaoh at 130. Now he lived in the land of Goshen for 17 years, and now it's time for him to die. God had given him a new name, Israel, when God really got hold of his heart. Not Jacob the supplanter. Remember, Jacob is the supplanter. He gave him a new name, meaning that you strive with the Lord. You wrestle with the Lord. He says, when the time came for Israel to die, in verse 29, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers and you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of his bed. He bowed in worship at the head of his bed. In the, in the, uh, uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this says, and he, he, he uh, uh, leaning on the top of his staff. Very hard to, to, to translate this, this Old Hebrew. And that's how we know that the author of the book of Hebrews was re- re- using the Septuagint and not the Mesoretic text. Our Old Testament is translated primarily from the Masoretic text. So you see that when it's time for him to die, it says that Jacob, he knew that he was dying. He called his son Joseph. So he called Joseph. Joseph is not in that city. Joseph had set up the children of Israel in a separate place. And he says, please, if I've found favor in your sight. So it's a request. It's a request. Please, if I've found favor in your sight. Place your hand under my thigh. The same thing that Abraham did with his servant when Abraham was dying. He made him put his hand under his thigh and swear to him. Put your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. Do not bury me in Egypt. 
Remember the covenant of the land, the covenants that God gave Abraham, the covenant of circumcision and the covenant of the land. This covenant of the land. Now Jacob realizes the covenant of the land. Don't bury me here. Bury me with my father and my grandfather there in that cave in Hebron. And you can go to that cave today and see the grave of the patriarchs and their wives, except for Rachel is in that cave. And you can, you can, uh, and, and, and so he says, bury me there, not here. He is, he sees the importance of the land. And he sees what's happening to his children in that place. They are becoming Egyptianized. Joseph has become Egyptianized. How do we know? Well, the, the, the scriptures give us several, several clues about Joseph. What became of this magnificent Joseph? And it's hard to pick on Joseph because he was such a great man. He was a great man when he was a young man. He was a great man when he was a, when he was a servant. He was a great man when he was a slave and when he was in, in the prison. But when he experienced blessing and prosperity, life became much different for him. Just his expressions and his attitude changes. We see nothing of that. We see nothing of the great works that he did. It seems as if all interpretations and all prophecies of Joseph end once he gets exalted. And I will tell you, and D.L. Moody used to say the same thing, that the most trying thing on a man is not poverty. It is not persecution. The most testing thing upon a man is success. You give a man success, and there you will really test his mettle in the faith. You grant a man success. Success is the thing that really challenges many of us. And this will challenge you as well. Many of you are here for advanced degrees and getting advanced degrees, and you're going to be brought up into big companies, and you're going to end up being COOs and CEOs and lots of things. Will you maintain your faith? He sees his sons being Egyptianized, and he realizes. And he knows the prophecies to Abraham. The prophecy to Abraham is that your children will be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years, and then I'll take them out. He sees this as the beginning of it, but he says, bring me back to that land. We'll talk next time more about, about Joseph's life and the indication we had that Joseph was really becoming Egyptianized. But he says, you bring me back to that land. What's he doing? He says, if you bury me in that land, I want you to have to walk through that land of Canaan. I want you and your brothers to see that land again. To see where you came from. Never forget that land. Never forget that land. I know several of you had visited the land of Israel last year with a, with a student group. How many of you have been to Israel? And when you went on that trip, didn't it do something for you? You see that land, it's different. And you're not even, most of you aren't even Jews. Imagine if you were Jews, there's an attachment to that land. Even to this day, it's a hard thing to understand. And there were traditions that were settled that were deep down in this family's heart. They weren't a very godly family. But he says in the end of his life, you've got to get back to that land. Don't forget that land. He knew if they had to, if they took him. And he says, he says, you are to bury me in that place. He says, do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt. Every word, every word in the scripture has meaning. 
It is packed. It says, you shall carry me out. It doesn't say you shall put me on the back of an animal or you shall put me in a wagon. You are to carry me out. My 12 sons are to carry me to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, and they are to bury me. Promise me you will do that. Will you do that? He says, I'll do it. He said, swear to me. Swear to me. He used the same words when he challenged his brother Esau about the birthright. He said, swear to me. He puts him in a position where he can't back out of this because he knows he's become Egyptianized. We'll see that next time. All the different indications the scriptures give us. He says, swear to me. So he swore to him. We don't even know in what name he was swearing. But we know twice, two other times we hear Joseph swear. And he swears on the life of Pharaoh. Again, another indication that he had become Egyptianized. We only see him twice giving up a swear in the name of somebody else. A promise in the name of somebody else. And Joseph swears in the name of Pharaoh twice. He wondered, had he become Egyptianized? So he swore to him. And Israel bowed and worshipped at the head of his bed. So the New Testament calls upon this bowing in worship as one of the indications of faith. Now go to chapter 48, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. So we have no indication who it was who told Joseph. Who it was who went down and told Joseph that your father is sick. He never said, Call your sons. He just said, Your father is sick. Behold, your father is sick. So Joseph knows. So he brings his two sons. Well, Joseph probably wanted the blessing and wanted the blessing for his two sons as well. Who better than Joseph of the twelve sons to be the one to be put in the prime position? He was the one who was making sure that the the rest of the family was taken care of. He was the one who had brought them in 17 years earlier, 17 years plus earlier, because he's going to die. So, So they came in at 130, he's going to die at 147, so 17 years earlier. We know that he had two sons. The two sons were actually born before Israel, before Jacob ever came into Israel, it says. They were born during the years of plenty. So they were born more than 17 years ago. So each of these sons is probably more, we know has to be more than 17. So maybe 20, early 20s. He never said to call them. But he brought them, probably to get the blessing from their dying father. When it was told Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come. When it was told Jacob, we don't know who told him, this mystery person. Your son Joseph has come. Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. He collected his strength. What do you do if somebody comes to see you in the hospital? You get yourself together and you you just do the best you can to straighten yourself up. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, there, you see, invoking again. Before he invoked the land, here he's invoking God Almighty, El Shaddai. This is not a generic God. It is not a pagan prayer. He says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. 
And he said, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give you this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. He calls him back to the land. He reminds him, that land, that Canaan, he blessed me in the land of Canaan, and he said, this land is where you're going to be. It's not in Egypt. You've become Egyptianized, but this is not your home. It is easy to start taking on the things of the world. Let me put it in this context, and I think that the international students here will get this much better. I have known international students, internationals to come as Christians to the United States, and they are on fire for the Lord. Great passion and excitement for the Lord. You look at them ten years later, and the passion and excitement is gone. They've easily been Americanized and brought into the desires of the world and what it means to have to work for a living so hard and provide and and, and get the cars and the houses and the car payments and the house payments and all the other things that encroach upon a life. They don't deny Jesus, but there's not the fire there was. Has anyone ever seen this before in international students? Anyone ever seen this? It happens. He's reminding him of the land. It is very easy to slip away. I'm going to close with this portion and we'll pick up on this concept next week as we talk about both, both uh, 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 Jacob at the end of his life and then also Joseph. But let's close with this portion in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 37. Hebrews 10, 37. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Remember, he's reminding these Jewish believers who are, have accepted the Messiah in the surrounding areas of Judea. Don't go back into Judaism just because of this persecution or you're going to end up in Jerusalem and you're going to end up being destroyed. He says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. You live by faith. And if you shrink back, my soul has no pleasure in you. He never says you'll lose your salvation. He says, my soul has no pleasure in you. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. Remember, when we shrink back, there is destruction. To them, it was the destruction of their lives if they moved into Jerusalem. To us, it is the destruction of our homes and our families. Just as we saw the life of Jacob when he would shrink back. What did he end up with? He ended up with a wife who he loved a lot, but she was an idol worshiper. Couldn't even be buried with the patriarch's wives because she was an idol worshiper. You bring great problems upon yourself if you know the Lord and you shrink back. We are not to mess around with this stuff. You can't shrink back and say, well, you know, I'll get my career going and then, I, you know, in a few years, then we'll go to church. When we have kids, then we'll go to church because the kids need it, you know. Kids need it. We, we don't. We're okay. The little kids need it. Very, very easy to deceive oneself. Very easy to deceive oneself. 
What you place in the heart of children when they are little kids, they will see you and they see hypocrisy. Very quickly they see hypocrisy. And they point it out. A life of hypocrisy they point out. They will do what you do much more than they will do what you say. We don't mess around with this stuff. Many of you are going to be put in high positions and get promotions. And all of a sudden you're going to think, well, I can't testify of the Lord in this sort of environment. I I guess I'll just be quiet about it. To your detriment. If you shrink back, his soul has no pleasure in you. If I shrink back, his soul has no pleasure in me. I don't lose my salvation, but there's no pleasure. I pray all the time, Lord, please, please get hold of my life. Don't let me do anything to bring pain into the life of my wife, to be, bring pain into the life of my testimony. Lord, I would rather die. Take me home than to fall into a place where I would walk in immorality and bring that pain upon my home, bring that pain upon my testimony. Lord, take me home now. I don't want to live like that. Lord, protect me. Lord, protect me. What, am I weaker than you? Or do we not all have to be praying, Lord, protect me from that. Lord, keep the fire burning in me. Let the Word of God take hold of my heart. Keep it burning in me. And I know that if you will get into the reading of the Word of God daily, you will be just fine. Because then you will relate to the body of Christ. If you're not in relation to the body of Christ, you will easily slip away from reading the Scriptures and the whole thing snowballs. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. Praise be to your name. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, for these young people that you get a hold of their hearts, that they would not shrink back to destruction. And many of them have taken hold of you and grown in these these student groups, these Christian groups on campus. But, Lord, I pray that they would not be like many when they graduate to refrain from getting involved in local churches and that they refrain from growing in the Lord. Father, but they would take hold of this and they would grow in the Lord. They would take the truths that they have heard and the realities and the truth of God and make it real in their lives, that they would continue to meditate in the Scriptures. Father, because if they shrink back, I know your soul would have no pleasure in them and they'd bring great pain upon their own homes and families. Father, I pray for these young people. Spare them that pain. And Father, for those here who do not know you, Father, I pray that you would save their souls, that this day they would say, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner. Forgive me because I am a sinner. Glory be to your name. Glory be to your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen.